welcome to another episode of This Show Is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Thanks for joining me again this week. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Is it at at social media or on social media? It's on. Yeah, okay. Anyway, at those ones, just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. would love to chat with you. Welcome to episode 54, everyone, for January 17th. 2022. And today is the day that we are honoring uh, the birthday and life of Martin Luther King Jr. And so today's show is going to uh, be honoring that and uh, taking a look at maybe some ways that uh, what that what this day can mean for all of us. So with that in mind, the title for today's show is Honoring a Better Angel of Our Nature. Honoring a Better Angel of Our Nature. That reference comes from a quote that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, gave once upon a time about how uh, the the American experiment uh, was going to be best served by us connecting with the best angels of our nature and not the worst. Uh, and and Martin Luther King Jr. is, in my opinion, one of the greatest Americans to ever live for a lot of reasons that go beyond just his uh, soaring rhetoric and his uh, his ability to to move people with words. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So w- with that in mind, building off of last week's discussion about um, the January 6th coup attempt and uh, sort of us needing to really take a good look at ourselves in all of that first. Uh, that's where we're going to go today with this. So with that in mind, the haiku for today goes like this. To move beyond our sad standards of division requires us to try. To move beyond our sad standards of division requires us to try. So with that in mind, uh, first of all, before we start, as always, I want to make sure that I thank our sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, which is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in uh, the fields of aviation and aerospace. And they do that in a number of ways, offering a number of different programs uh, for elementary school kids all the way up through college age uh, and beyond, programs they can do in person and virtual. But they're also a facilitating organization that creates relationships with all sorts of different entities to help individual students uh, become better advocates for themselves uh, and help improve uh, things for their families as well as their communities. If you would like to know more about the amazing work that they do, uh, you can check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly via email using the tag info at airsci.org. So thanks to them. And uh, certainly this this fits uh, what I'm going to talk about today, fits some ways with the mission of ASK and uh, working with underserved uh, youth. Many of them are kids of color and ASK notices and works with every day some of the realities of uh, a system in this country that still uh, suffers from inequity. And so with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about what sort of what I'm thinking about today uh, with, with this being MLK Day. And certainly the examples from Martin Luther King Jr.'s life of moments uh, that are indelibly printed in history books and in public consciousness are many. Uh, certainly his I Have a Dream speech from August of 1965 uh, certainly fits into that and is often the most quoted. Uh, and there are many other examples. And, and certainly uh, today is a day that if you're spending any time on social media, this is one of the most memeable days uh, of the entire year. There are many memes popping up of the many quotes that Martin Luther King Jr. has given about Everything from the nature of justice to where does hope fit 
uh, in all of this, the importance of p- political activism um, and so many other things. <laughs> so in trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about, it seemed maybe to focus on just one example of something that stands out to me about him. And so I'd like to focus uh, today on going through his 1963 letter from Birmingham jail. Now, it is something that if uh, if there are any high school kids listening, you know what I'm talking about because you have learned about this already, or and if you haven't yet, you will. It's pretty standard in most high school curriculums these days. But nevertheless, the letter from Birmingham jail is one of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s shortest uh, speeches, if you will, shortest moments of words all brought together. Uh, but it's certainly one of his most powerful. And uh, in 1963, it, was, it came out in April. He wrote it in April of 1963, and he was literally in jail in Birmingham uh, for being a part of nonviolent protests against segregation uh, in the South. And he was writing the letter in response to some uh, white evangelical Christian leaders in Birmingham and elsewhere in Alabama who had written to him telling him he was, in essence, out of bounds for doing what he was doing. And because he was acting against law and order, he wasn't acting in the best interest of not only the larger community, but of the African-American community in general. And Martin Luther King Jr. rejected that outright. Uh, And so he wrote a letter, an open letter, that was sent to in response to these leaders. It ended up being published uh, just a few months later in June uh, for the first time for people to read because of its power. And the quote that everyone remembers from that, and that, again, you see memed a lot, is, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That is from this letter. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that is certainly a powerful quote and uh, is one that that has been seen quite a lot in the last few years in the discussions and debates, sometimes civil, sometimes not, over uh, racial justice, social justice uh, questions in this country. However, if you read more of the letter, (laughs) there's some pretty amazing stuff in here. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I admire Martin Luther King Jr. as much as I do. Because he was a man, yes, he's remembered for his soaring rhetoric and he for the larger vision that he cast over what he dreamed America could be. And it's important not to undersell that or oversell that. It's one thing to have a vision. Uh, it's another thing how to make it happen. And yet, that vision matters. Right? And of course, the, the, big, the big one that stands out to me from his I, dream of, uh, I Have a Dream speech is you know, people not being judged on the color of this, their skin, but by the content of their character. Uh, so that vision is powerful, but he, that vision he expressed in a lot of other different places. And from a jail cell in Birmingham, one of the things he said, besides that famous quote I just gave you, that really stands out to me that ties in with what I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is this. And he said something in response to the claim that these leaders had said that, um, that he was acting out of bounds. Uh, this is what he said, quote, we are caught meaning as Americans, he meant, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial, quote unquote, outside agitator idea, end quote. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. And the reason why this jumps out to me to start with today is that last week I talked about Maybe that one universal truth that we can all maybe agree upon is that we all live in this country together and the issues that we face should matter to all of us and that finding working towards goals 
that can produce change needs to take all of that into account for people across the spectrum. And it, wasn't, it isn't just one side of the aisle's responsibility versus another necessarily. And I love that quote because it points out exactly that, right? A network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. That's, some, that's a powerful, powerful vision. And so I wanted to start there with that. One of the reasons why I think his words have resonated for so long, despite the fact that they terrified some people enough to have him killed, is because of that very idea. This notion that he's, he's hitting on is an uncomfortable one, that we all can't live in a society and get every single thing that we want all the time. And that it requires seeing that other people have different opinions of things, different goals, different priorities, different sets of beliefs, and working within that from a position of, unfortunately, as, as it turns out to be, a lot of discomfort in order for things to stay peaceful. And he has a lot of things to say about that that I think are worth us thinking about. At another point in the letter, he was uh, criticized by these church leaders for um, the nonviolent protests producing violence. Now, in response to that, he pointed out that the violence was being perpetuated against protesters, in this case uh, by the police, but also by, um, by racist entities uh, elsewhere in Alabama. And he said this in response, quote, I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help people to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. <laughs> so what I love about this, first of all, he's, he's right about Socrates, by the way. <laughs> Socrates embraced this idea of tension, or another word to give it is discomfort. Socrates, of course, became famous for several things, not just his thought in ancient Greece, but the fact that he asked questions repeatedly, very sharp questions in debates, pushing people all the way to the limit of what they could know or what they could logically defend. So he was known for that, but also for his demeanor, his demeanor of calm, despite the fact that he was nearly always making people uncomfortable. He was not threatened by discomfort. In fact, he believed that discomfort was the key to growth in individuals as well as in civilizations. And so... Martin Luther King Jr. calling upon him as an example of that, I think is really appropriate. And that's something that I think is worth thinking about. How often are the fears that we have in our contemporary world about ourselves, about society at large, how often are those fears based in the fact that it just makes us uncomfortable? Fear and comfort seem to be things that, that like fear is produced in something, comfort is the goal. If I can just get rid of the fear, I'll be comfortable. Or if I can just find comfort, the fear will go away. And that comfort can come from a number of different places. You know, manifesting around a group of people or around a certain idea, a certain perspective, a certain political party, a certain social stance. It can come from one of those things. It can come from just simply embracing simple explanations for complex problems. or the opposite from overcomplicating 
<laughs> something that is rather simple. And that was something that Martin Luther King Jr. talked a lot about in this letter. Right? What discomfort does, and Martin Luther King Jr. seemed to understand this, and certainly Socrates did as well, is that what discomfort does when we allow ourselves to experience it, it opens us up to introspection with ourselves, first of all, and it provides space for other people to do the same. Discomfort can be a place where people can actually start to listen to each other better and more effectively than two people coming from a comfortable space and doing that. So, in fact, in a lot of ways, you could argue that the primary producer of growth on a personal level, social level, national level is discomfort. (laughs) And certainly, there's always more than enough discomfort to go around. So why don't we embrace it more these days? It's a question worth thinking about. It doesn't have to be a threat. Now, to continue, elsewhere in the letter, Martin Luther King Jr. says to his white colleagues, my friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But, as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, he was a theologian of the time, groups are more immoral than, indiv- more immoral than individuals. <laughs> the last part. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but groups are more immoral than individuals. That is, whew, talk about an example of discomfort. Let's sit on that last line for a little while. And I'll just take it from my point of view since I can really only speak for me <laughs> in the end. You know, certainly my mind has changed on a number of things over the last handful of years and probably will continue because change is a constant. And yet there are things that I have changed my mind on that I still have a difficult time uh, talking about in certain groups. <laughs> uh, whether that group is my family, whether that group is, is certain circles of friends or whatnot, it can be tough to do that particularly when doing so, having changed our mind and having that discomfort having changed our mind, might put relationships that we care about at risk. (laughs) None of us wants to lose anybody that we care about. None of us wants to uh, be ostracized or pushed out of various circles. And yet, on some level, (laughs) if we have changed our mind, particularly around a moral question, uh, it's imperative in the end that we follow through on that commitment we've made to ourselves by changing our mind, because that is what it is, really. Uh, so with that, that discomfort again, another way for us uh, to really focus on that really all this change begins with us, which Martin Luther King Jr. talked about all the time. That you know, There was an importance of legislation, certainly, to him. He was a big push, uh, primary pusher of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, for example, and the Civil Rights Act. Of 1964, so he understood the importance of legislation, and those questions are happening right now. Congress is debating a voting rights bill today, as a matter of fact. Uh, but he also understood that there had to be discomfort, connection, and a changing of hearts along the way. Otherwise, one was not going to help produce the other, and change was not going to happen. Now, he continues in the letter, giving vivid details about why it was very difficult for the black community to listen and take seriously, uh, please for them to just slow down and wait, to not be so radical. He gives a lot of vivid examples in the letter. It's worth reading. Uh, 
But then he takes on this idea of uh, laws and unjust laws. And he says this, quote, there are two types of laws, just laws and unjust ones. I would agree with St. Augustine that, quote, an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? He says that a just law is, quote, a man-made code that squares with a moral law. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. And this is the key. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now, imagine if indeed this was the standard we followed. What are such natural laws? What are the ones that degrade human personality and what are the ones that uplift? Honestly, I'm not sure wherever you are on the political spectrum, you, where you could not be challenged by this idea or not be challenged by this standard. It would require an uncomfortable set of examinations for anybody anywhere on that social political spectrum to take a look at what they individually believed in and why and see if it really held up under that type of moral scrutiny around that idea of all of us living together and the need for compromise. I think we'd all be really uncomfortable with it. And that's exactly what I'm suggesting we should be doing. Again, discomfort creates space. It creates opportunity for us to look at things differently. It presents opportunities for us to allow other people into our circles, to take them seriously, to listen to them, to connect with them in ways that just simply staying comfortable does not. And then in an area that also gets quoted quite a bit, he talks about his disappointment with so-called white moderate in the South. And he essentially says that even more so than the Ku Klux Klan or any other hate groups, uh, white moderates who, as he put it, quote, are more devoted to order than to justice, who prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, end quote, to be more of a problem than outright hate groups. Because, of course, more moderates were much more plentiful, just like they are today. And the problem was, is he saw them as much more interested in not being uncomfortable than engaging in the discomfort of standing behind what Martin Luther King and others were trying to do to fight segregation and pass uh, fair laws on behalf of black Americans. And as he points out in other, other spots, um, these are the same people who, quote, set a timetable for another person's freedom, who live by the myth of time who constantly advise those to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And I sometimes wonder if this is one reason why a letter from Birmingham jail causes many people so much unease, right? What he's suggesting here is that the idea of peace between peoples is not the idea that there's an absence of discomfort. In fact, it's the exact opposite. That rather than lukewarm acceptance, as he puts it, of the status quo, of really taking a look individually as to whether they can, one can do more than they are. As he says, quote, it is the strangely irrational notion 
that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel, he said, that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. We must never come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. Recently, I've really been learning a lot about a distinction that I didn't see before, a distinction that to me, oftentimes I make about time. I only have so much time to do the things I want to do, only so much time in a day, only so much time in my life to pursue the goals and hope for the dreams that I have. I've really been learning a lot more recently that it's not so much about time as it is about energy. How much energy do I have and where do I want to spend it? Where is the best place for me to spend it? Where should I spend it? Right? It brings to mind a very different example that I think about a lot from the historian's point of view. And that is those Germans who lived in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 1940s who were not Nazis. Who maybe never joined the Nazi party, and there were many who didn't. The ones who maybe had Jewish friends and didn't stand up for them as they were persecuted, separated from society, and eventually deported for mass murder. How many of them, in retrospect, after the war, would rather have maybe embraced the discomfort that they may have faced and done something, even if it put themselves at risk? Because the fact of the matter is many of them chose security and prosperity that came for them. If you, were, if you were a German in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, by the end of the 30s, there was a good chance you had a job. You lived in one, uh, one of the most crime-free states on earth. There was no political dissent, mainly because there was no political dissent allowed. So there were no political divisions. There was a very powerful vision of greatness and uniqueness being put forward by the Nazis. But everyday lives of Germans who fit the Nazis' definition of the superior race were improving through the 1930s. And so there were many Germans who made that bargain who decided that all those excesses, as many of them called it, of Nazi ideology and Nazi action, were worth it because they were back at work, their families were safe, they lived in a country that was prospering, quote-unquote. That is a problem, and certainly is just one example of what can happen, as several commentators said at the time, when good people do nothing. Just something to think about that comes up for me with this. Martin Luther King also said in the same letter when he was called an extremist by some of these writers, he said he he listed some other extremists who he said were pushing for love and change and acceptance and equity and equality. Jesus of Nazareth <laughs> goes right for it, right? <laughs> Talking to other religious leaders. The, uh, the prophet Amos, another one. The apostle Paul, Martin Luther, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. He pointed them out. And certainly, right, uh, all of them were, became famous for their positions. A number of them, looking at this list, were killed for it. <laughs> so 
uh, Jesus, Paul, Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. himself, uh, killed for those lofty ideals, for expressing them, and, of course, producing fear and discomfort in some people as a result. And so he lists those out in the letter and points out that perhaps he's closer to the side <laughs> of what those people stood for than the people writing the letters to them. Uh, and there are a number of other things that he hits on this letter, and I'm running a little bit short on time. But one of the things that he did point out that I would like to finish with is that he identified particularly these church leaders and other white uh, Christians at the time, pointed out that if they were telling people to follow the law, it was only because laws were in place for desegregation, not because they were morally right. And he challenged this outright. And he says to churches something that I think, honestly, from my opinion, is applicable today, sadly, right? Um, and, well, actually, I am running out of time on this, aren't I? I'm going to have to wait on this one till next time. Uh, so I hate to leave you in suspense uh, for a week, but I'm going to have to leave you there. It's okay. Uh, there's only so much time, and this gives you a chance to uh, really think through uh, some of the things that were put out today. What I will say in closing on, in this episode of this show is all about you, that discomfort in the end is not our enemy. Martin Luther King Jr. was simply pointing out the uncomfortable realities of the time in which he lived and the necessity of embracing discomfort to bring about changes that would bring about a fairer, more equal, and in his mind, a better society. Those are ideals that continue to last, and that push for discomfort, to embrace that discomfort, is I think something all of us can take to heart and consider as we move forward in 2022, 2022 with all the challenges uh, that we'll be following with that. So we'll pick up with this next week, right where we left off. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Until I see you next week, everyone, keep your chins up. <laughs>